when I can have morels, strafarias, oyster mushrooms, shiitake mushrooms growing in my apple orchard. So I get all these different things that are growing there, virtually free of charge. All I have to do is design the system uh, and, and move animals accordingly in harmony with both nature and the law. This is the Regenerative Real Estate Podcast. Revitalizing the world together. Hi there. Welcome to the Regenerative Real Estate Podcast. I am the host, Neil Collins. I'm really glad that you tuned into this episode. This episode to me is taking regenerative practices a regenerative mindset, regenerative design, and really instilling it down into actionable steps. Every single week, I get to have these incredible guests on and interview them about their story and their philosophy and their work. And I walk away feeling just completely inspired and energized. I know you're going to get that out of this episode as well. But I want to back up before we get in there, and I want to talk about something that I read in the Wall Street Journal, and I mentioned this in the episode, but it's in these COVID times, it's saying that people are starting to question why they're living where they're living. Is this really the life that they want? And I know for so many people, they want to live a little bit closer to the land, a little bit closer to nature. They might have these dreams of either visiting the country on the weekend or starting a farm and they're not really sure how to do it. I mean, most people, what they're resorting to is they're getting on Instagram and they're looking at these photos and they're liking them and they're sharing them with their friends and they're saying, oh my God, wouldn't it be great if dot, dot, dot. And it's really funny to watch this play out even on our own company Latitude's Instagram account because we love to interject and say, you know what? If you wanna take that idea and that dream and make it a reality, you have to get in contact with us. Because at some point, we have to go from, wouldn't it be great to, isn't this great that we're doing it? And so today's guest is Mark Shepard. Mark, I know him as a permaculturist and an agroforester. But Mark is so much more than that. And in one sense, he's a philosopher, a thought leader, an author, and all these things. You can find Mark across the internet and read his books. And in another sense, it's a guy that wants to hang out in the woods in his house and enjoy nature. And what he gets into can be the nuts and bolts of real estate finance, if that's how you want to conceive it. But I really encourage you to look beyond some of the things that he's talking about, if you're not familiar with how financing works, because that's where we do go. But I want to push you to think that what we're talking about is regenerative business. It's a mindset. It's understanding that we live in living systems amongst living systems amongst living systems ad infinitum. And if you can get that and you can start tapping into that, not only with your life, but with your business and align all aspects into that modality, it just gets better and better. And I say that because we are currently living through that, even in these dark and crazy times of COVID, election year, and all the other shenanigans that are going on out there, some amazingly inspiring, others hopelessly heartbreaking. And so without further ado, I would love to open up our guest, Mark Shepard. Thanks so much. Welcome back, everybody. This is Neil Collins. I'm very excited about our guest today. His name is Mark Shepard. He is the CEO of Forest Agriculture Enterprises. He runs New Forest Farm. And I've known Mark from listening to to content that he's put out. And I know him as a philosopher, a teacher, an author, and a thought leader. Mark, thank you so much for taking the time and coming on. Well, thanks for having me. Mark, you, you have 
so much out there that it's almost hard to prepare for a conversation like this because we could go in about a million different directions. But I know you grew up on the East Coast. What's um, what was life growing up as a kid? Well, I grew up um, about 20 miles north of Worcester, Massachusetts, north central Massachusetts, uh, near Lemonster, Fitchburg, Clinton, which was uh, basically the birthplace of the plastics industry in the in the East. And um, you know, my dad uh, worked in factories, and he was a fix-it guy. Um, whatever would break, he'd fix it and put it together. Also, would would um, kind of do like part-time inventing down cellar. So he was somewhat of a tool maker, model maker. And my mom uh, was a school teacher, and then eventually morphed into being a tutor for kids that had uh, a condition that only had, was being discovered at the time where they would reverse letters up and down and left and right known as dyslexia and um, uh, lived in all kinds of rat trap apartments we were on food stamps um, you know never had enough money just a you know the, the typical classic you know industrial wasteland story and one of the biggest games when I was a kid was to guess what color the river is going to be today we lived on a hill but the river looped around and no matter which way you left on the road, you go down the hill this way, you go down the hill that way, you got to go across the river. So you make your guesses. Most of the time it was like this uh, disgusting sludge green, but it would be everything from like this beautiful cobalt blue to orange to red. And that was all dye from the uh, paper factories and leather mills, just dumping it directly into the, into the river because they didn't have wastewater treatment plants back then. They didn't, well, they, they were had been invented, but why would you install them in a factory when it's going to cost you money to do that? And nobody we wonder why people are getting sick. <laughs> so you're you're known as a farmer and a permaculturist. From a young age, did you have exposure to, <laughs> to farming? <laughs> well, um, actually, uh, my mom was a, a dispossessed dairy girl from Vermont. And so two of her brothers, one was, uh, was still a farmer. He was a dairy farmer. We'd vacation on his farm in the summertime, which was great. And then another one that I never really met the guy until I was probably in my 20s or 30s, he um, ran cattle and did pecans down in Virginia. And um, so that, that was a little bit of the family history. But as a kid, uh, most of my experience with growing stuff um, happened because I was uh, – conscripted yeah that's the term conscripted by my parents to work in the garden it was the whole uh 1970s oil embargo uh economic crisis stagflation and all that kind of whatever and so you know my parents solution to that i'm i'm six foot tall 250 pounds <clears throat> i'm the smallest of three brothers and so it took a lot of feed to to keep these things alive and um so i, I worked in the garden a lot which really annoyed me because most gardens are placed out in the full sun. That's what these garden plants need. And then you till up the soil, you turn it over with a you know, hoe or a shovel or whatever, and then you mulch stuff afterwards. We're continually making compost. It's in the sun, it's hot, it's sweaty. You don't start putting things in the ground till the end of May. And then you're finished by you know, September or October when the frost comes. And all we make is a couple of carrots and tomatoes that I don't even like boiled carrots. So why would I want to work my arse off in a garden to grow something that doesn't really feed me? We still had to go to the store to buy our carbohydrates or proteins and our oils. And after I was uh, released from my conscriptive duties for the day, I go walk in the woods. It was quite a bit of woods uh, behind our house. We're right next to a military base. So I kind of like trespassed as a little kid. Um, and when I was in the woods, I could pick blueberries and strawberries and raspberries and grapes and hickory nuts and hazelnuts. I'd look for chestnuts that were still, you know, alive, American chestnuts in, in the East Coast. And I realized that, you know, why can't we take the, the organizational order of a garden that makes it easy to deal with, with the perennialism of the forest. So we take the forest from over here and take the garden from over here and bring them together, grow them in the same place. And it was about that time when I was thinking these thoughts, I ran into a book written in 1926 called Tree Crops, A Permanent Agriculture by J. Russell Smith. It's available free online. And it changed my world. Because at that time, uh, about 50% of all of our annual grains and legumes were fed the livestock for feed. 
and especially the vegetarian vegan community understand that it takes approximately 10 pounds of, of feed to make one pound of beef. And that is, that is, that, that it's a, a absolute horrible waste of things that humans could eat to feed an animal that when you could be eating those things directly. And so that, that kind of got me uh, really plugged into Smith's book because he says, well, wait a minute, since 50% of all these, these grains and legumes are fed to livestock, why don't we on hilly ground, why don't we grow the seeds on trees, things like acorns that we don't have as a regular part of our diet anymore? Why don't we grow these things on trees that become the feed for our livestock? And then on the flatter ground is where we grow our grains and our legumes so we won't have the erosion and so on. And so that's, that's what really kind of got me thinking to, uh, of like, well, I like hanging out in the woods. I want to live somewhere other than this apartment, you know, in this nasty toxic wasteland with a polluted river down, down the bottom of the hill. I want to live out in the woods somewhere and I want to live this way. I want to live with the trees and the bushes and the shrubs and the vines and the animals and the birds, all that kind of stuff all around me. And that, that kind of, that was a, that was a pretty big <laughs> kind of a gelling point when all that came together in my mind. At some point you got a mechanical engineering degree in there. Well, yeah. And then there was ecology and all that. Well, I, well, cause you know, here I am, I'm in the industrial wasteland. How do I get out? Really? How do you get out? Well, you, you, you know, you go to a good school, get a good education, get a good job, you work real hard. And after, you know, 30 or so years, maybe you can afford to buy a little place out in the country and you can retire there. And, you know, where I was working uh, as an engineer, mechanical engineer, um, I worked at a, a uh, body armor and helmets lab for the military in um, Natick, Massachusetts. And I was just looking around at all these older guys yeah, they finally had gotten to the point where they could afford a little place in the countryside. And they got, you know, quintuple bypasses and they're, you know, 3,000 pounds. They got diabetes, you know, just all these horrible health problems. It's like, well, I don't want to go to a place like that and die. I want to I explore and, and live that way while I'm young and healthy and enjoy it for, for all I can. You know, one of the interesting things that I'm seeing right now is I read a Wall Street Journal article yesterday that said, because of COVID, people are starting to question where they want to live. And in so many people, they, they think, I, I'd love to get a little bit more rural and onto a farm, but it, it feels so out of, out, of, out of arm's grasp. And I, I know part of your story was you, you went the sourdough route up to Alaska <laughs> and spend some time up there. How was that experience for you? Well, I, had, I was actually working uh, at the engineering lab and uh, it's a cute story actually. Uh, and I was reading Yankee magazine. You know how every region has like the regional magazine there's Midwest and there's, you know, Southwest and, you know, sun country and you, it's all the touristy stuff and you kind of flipping through and there's nice articles in there. And there was this article about the closing of the 1860 Homestead Act up in Alaska. They'd closed the agricultural parcels back in 1972, but they still had these little five acre parcels that you could go, you go claim the land, you build a little house on it, and you live there for five months out of the year for three years in a row, it costs you $10 to file for it, and then $10 to actually purchase the land. It's like, well, 20 bucks, I can afford land, yay! Well, um, <laughs> it costs way more than that in lifeblood sweat and all that kind of stuff. So I, uh, um, through a series of, of long stories, I hitchhiked my way to Alaska and claimed land 300 miles northeast of Anchorage, um, about five miles off the nearest road. You cross, you cross a river, you go, you know, portage to two lakes, go through two lakes, you go through like a mile swamp. And then you go 3,500 feet up the side of the side of the mountain. And um, you probably, I don't know if you see Mount Hood from where you are somewhere on a, on a, on a sunny day. Yeah. Well, Mount Hood was one of the small mountains that were around me. I was near the Wrangell St. Elias um, Mountains National Park and Preserve. And it's the, high, the largest concentration of peaks in excess of 12,000 feet in North America. <clears throat> and they were like right out the window. So it was, it was um, fantastically beautiful. 
incredibly uh, rugged. If you made a mistake, you would die. Um, and you know, the, all the Alaska adventures from the bears and the wolverines and the attacked by a moose and falling in the river, going through the ice, all that kind of stuff, all of it happened. It was, <laughs> it was uh, but what, <clears throat> what was <clears throat> most significant while I was there, I started um, fine tuning these ideas that I, I had learned back in the, with the forest and the garden and I wanna take the two and blend them together. And um, there, was, there was no wild game around where we were because all the settlers shot it all. There was no fur-bearing animals because the settlers trapped it all. Hardly any fish left in the stream because they fished it all out. It's like, well, how can we live in this place without destroying it? And um, what I started to do is interact with the environment as it was. And if there was a couple of berry plants here and there, I would divide them all up and arrange them in such a way where, where I saw the best looking berry plants or nut bushes or this, that, or the other thing, where I saw the best examples of this or the best examples of that, I would try to replicate that. So I was copying what nature did somewhat randomly and I organized it to, to fit in on, on, the, on the parcel. And all of a sudden I started to realize, it's like, wow, I, I've kind of stumbled onto something here because what, what used to exist in, um, in a, a wild area, human beings would go from resource concentration to resource concentration. They would hunt for wild game and they would gather what was available when it was in season. Well, if I just design the system to have all of my needs in there with you know, tall trees, medium trees, shrubs, ground uh, layers, you know, grasses and animals coming through on paths this way and that way, I can kind of like, I don't have to go hunting because food comes to me because I've got the most amazing concentration of resources around um, and I can harvest all the stuff that's around me. I don't have to go looking for it. And so I, I, I was writing notes about what I was learning and uh, took it to a friend of mine who lived up valley five or six miles or so. He said, oh, that kind of design is called permaculture. I'm like, what? <laughs> Somebody wrote my book, oh no. And then I, I got all the permaculture uh, info at the time, which consisted of two paperback books, Permaculture One and Permaculture Two. And that, that started a, uh, you know, literally started a lifelong passion into uh, studying the natural world and figuring out how we can imitate how the natural world works in order to make a habitat that works for humans, uh, produces a surplus, a natural surplus, because you know trees grow, grass grows. I mean, people even in Portland, they mow their lawns every once in a while. Why? Because the grass grows. Well, what if that was food? The food grows, how do you get rid of food? Ha <laughs> ha, you eat it. And so um, when I was there in, in Alaska, I realized that the potential of this uh, approach is, is off the charts, literally world changing. Because instead of going to an area, destroying an ecosystem to plow up the ground, to grow organic soybeans for vegans and harvest them with 55 combines that were manufactured in India with people's working for slave wages, living in the favelas, and then to go to war in the Middle East to get oil to feed those soybeans to people who won't eat meat, that is, that's fairly messed up. It's really messed up. However, we can go to any degraded piece of land. We can now restore the ecosystem using the plant community types that belong there and design it and arrange it in such a way that we can plant it mechanically, maintain it mechanically, harvest it mechanically, and the yields that are produced are produced with the, uh, the full cost and expense of nature. And how much does nature spend taking care of itself? Nothing. Um, and so that, that's what I, uh, that became my next passion when I was up there in Alaska. And it didn't take more than six months for me to find uh, an investor who was going to put the down payment on a piece of property, which was, which was this one right here, New Forest Farm in Wisconsin. <clears throat> what did it look like before it was a farm or before it was your farm? <clears throat> uh, about, about a third of it at the time was abandoned crop fields. It's a really hilly property. 
And so there was a tremendous amount of erosion. There's, you know, some erosion gullies that haven't even healed yet. I'm doing the best I can to, you know, to, to hold them together. Um, but every time the neighbor, it rains on the neighbor's farm, you got 60 acres worth of water running through this, you know, erosion channel. It's kind of tough to stop that. Um, the, what wasn't abandoned crop fields uh, was um, pasture that was grazed down to as uh, short as a golf course green. And this is where, where I really want the traditional real estate folks to pay particular attention is that you can take something that was not abundant or producing or degraded because of a system and you can infuse in a philosophy of regeneration and restoration. Well, and actually what we'll have to do is we kind of jump back a half step. Yeah. It was while I was in Alaska working this out before I had found the investor. Um, I had started when I was 18 years old, I think it was, uh, taking 10% of my income, no matter how much or how little I made. 10% uh, of that goes to a special account, which is for charitable contributions. 10% of it went into a savings uh, account that I could not touch. And the one at the time, you know, this 35 years ago that you couldn't touch were the um, Schedule E U.S. savings bonds. You had to wait five years before you could cash them in. And so since I was 18, so I was in my mid-20s when I was up in Alaska, um, I had been socking away 10% of whatever it earns. And I just, since I was used to being broke and poor as a kid, it wasn't all that difficult to be broke and poor, um, you know, living out in the middle of nowhere, Alaska. Uh, so what I was able to do I was able to start purchasing clear cuts up in Maine, which is where my, my dad's family first came to the, um, to the, this continent was up in Northern Maine and clear cuts. They're ugly. They need help. Uh, and most commonly they're very affordable to purchase. And so that was, that was my first foray into, you know, formal real estate purchasing. And my idea was buy a degraded, piece of property, replant trees, but I'm going to replant specifically uh, more of uh, the food producing trees that will grow there. And if they don't really do well there, we're going to turn it loose just like nature does and the survivors will survive and the ones that produce the most seed get to go back in the ground and produce the most, you know, offspring. And then what I would do is I'd build a recreational cabin out of the salvaged materials that were there, purchase a, a couple of, um, you know, whatever I needed, roofing, roofing shingles and stuff like that. And then by purchasing this clear cut, replanting the resource base that had been destroyed, then building a structure on it, all of a sudden I jacked the value on it, was able to borrow against that and continue uh, to move the, pro the whole process forward. I, I love that. I mean, how many different parcels did you do that on? Because I would imagine that time is the X factor. Well, and that, that that's one, one of the things that, you know, uh, has been, been the example of, of my whole entire life story. I'm on tree time. I'm not on the next quarter or the next two weeks or the next month or whatever it is. And so this whole process in the process of 35 years, there's been, two, three, eight, nine, ten different properties that um, I've been involved with uh, that were all debt financed, uh, all with the improving the resource base as the way to jack up the um, uh, appraised value and then to borrow against that to keep going. And, and this is, this is the, the latest property that I'm on. Um, and if you think about just buying a, buying a, you know, multifamily, I don't know if they have triple deckers in Portland, but they, you know, they sure do on the East coast. You buy a triple decker, you live in one unit. So you get the use benefit of this, this resource. Then you fix it up with your sweat equity. You don't pay yourself an hourly wage and insurance and all that kind of stuff. You're just doing it on your own. Well, it's now worth more and you can borrow against that to go buy another one. So I've been a non-selling flipper for 35 years, but I've been dealing with natural resource properties that my ultimate uh, harvest is some sort of food crop along the way that I can sell if I want. And longer term play is the timber on the property. 
and just so you know, I'm at the, I'm 57, six or seven. <laughs> uh, I'm on the other end now of the life cycle. And so what I've been doing for the past few years is now divesting myself of the various different holdings and passing it down to the next generation, metering it out so they don't incur any kind of um, uh, tax burden because of it. And so I kind of like worked my way in and divest myself on the way out. And so it's been a long-term play. This is not like a get-rich-quit scheme if you're going to be, you know, regenerating a natural resource base. Whenever you're, you're pulling equity out, I would imagine you're feeling fairly secure that the debt service that you're putting on it is getting covered by the increased production from the property? Uh, no, no. This is, this is where it gets scary for some people. No, the, the increased debt service, uh, I have to be able to carry with you know, whatever hustle I'm doing at the time. And the tree and shrub nursery has been a big one. Consulting has been a big one. Every kind of, you know, from driving a truck to tending bar to working at a lumber yard, uh, every little side hustle along the way, all of those different enterprises combined have to pay as landscaper, have to pay for the debt service, but I have to have enough uh, borrowing capacity. I, I try to make sure that I only, I'm only borrowed up to 30% of my ability to borrow. So if some time goes by and I can't make a payment on this, I, I kind of pay it with this and just keep flipping the debt over until you got the cash coming in again. And then you go ahead and go back to paying out of cash. And then what, what has made it work is the fact that you're paying off little by little through the years. I have all these different multiple businesses. And this is one of the permaculture design principles is we want to stack functions together. Um, if you got a piece of real estate, a lot of people like to say, oh, I want to buy a farm someday. And that what they're doing is they're confusing the function and the activity of growing agricultural crops and products, which is farming. They're confusing the function with the place where that takes, where that occurs. The real estate is the real estate. The farm is the activity that operates on that farm. So if you, uh, decide to go ahead and you purchase a shopping mall. You need an anchor tenant, you're the developer, restoration agriculture development. Um, I buy a piece of property, I need an anchor tenant to move in there. So, you know, in a shopping mall, it traditionally would be one of the big box retailers or whatever would be at the corner, each corner of this shopping mall. Well, so my anchor tenant would be a farm. And so the farm would be raising, you know, livestock, uh, and perennials, the, the perennials that it would raise are appropriate to that location. So in Maine, there are blueberries and hazelnuts uh, and chestnuts and pine nuts and raspberries and grapes. Well, in Wisconsin, there's a slightly different mix. In Arizona, it would be different mix. In, in Oregon, it would be a different mix. So this farming enterprise moves onto that property. And if it's gonna raise apples, it has to buy apple trees. So it buys apple trees from a nursery and plants them on that place. And this is all part of the cash flow of the farming enterprise. So the farming enterprise uh, has to pay for its own way and investing in its own future, which just so happens to have a side effect and benefit to the real estate, because what you've done is Pizza Hut moves into your shopping mall they build out the whole entire inside of that. You didn't have to do anything to it. You got the benefit, the added value to your shopping mall because Pizza Hut built their store. So on my real estate, I got to benefit from that. It's not my real estate. It's owned by a partnership. It's a different story. So the, the partnership got to benefit from this farm that moved on and improved the asset value. So that's stacking multiple functions together. And, and this is, I'm, I'm really glad that we got here even this quickly, because what I think is a, an interesting model is that you've taken agroforestry to apply it as a layer of, a, of activity on the property. Uh, but what I'm curious about is where do you, you found leverage financially through debt, 
Uh, but where are you finding the leverage to, to run those different activities on the property? Because hogs and cattle and harvesting and planting and all these other, other things, one, one person is not easily able to accomplish all that. Uh, you look around, all the farms, there's, there's like one person running thousands of acres at a time. Yeah, you just, what you don't do, this is, this is, this is actually a key. It, it may be somebody else's definition, but it's my personal definition. If you get up in the morning and you grab a hoe or a shovel or some other hand tool to go to work, you're a gardener, period. If you get up in the morning and you hop on the tractor or the combine or whatever, you're a farmer. There's a difference in scale uh, and a difference in what you can accomplish. And if you think that you're going to do farming with hand tools, you will work way too hard. You can make some money at it. Yay, good for you. And you will die a cripple at age 45. Whereas if you, you judiciously select what, what you're going to do, and I'll take trees as an example. If I'm going to go plant all these different trees, um, I'm going to buy uh, bulk wholesale. So I'll buy like a thousand. I only, may only need 500 trees. I'm going to buy a thousand trees to get the price down. Then I have 500 trees that I now have to sell. And so I'm going to contact this person who wanted a hundred and I can give you the 500, you know, quantity price break and so on. So I can pass the savings on to these people and I get my trees paid for. So the farm goes ahead and buys these trees uh, bulk wholesale. Well, geez, you need a nursery license to do that. So lo and behold, there's now another business. The nursery buys bulk wholesale, sells to all these people. Uh, one of the places that it sells to is a farm. The farm takes it, they plant it on the property. Now you have this, this situation where the real estate got its asset value improved because of that farmer doing its activity. And if you're just buying trees, um, it doesn't, and, and this is another, <laughs> go online and check out a Chestnut Enterprise Budget, Michigan State University. And you go through that whole example and all these different things you have to do, all the equipment that you have to have, uh, by the time you're five years out on a, on a uh, 20 acre chestnut operation, you're 150 in the hole. And I couldn't afford to do that. But if you go around, you know, no matter where you live, look at the ditch on the side of the road. There are things growing in the ditch on the side of the road. Nobody improved the soil, nobody mulched it. Nobody did pest control, weed control, nothing to it. Now. Go take a look. What are the food plants growing wild and crazy on the side of the road all by themselves with sheer total utter neglect, stunned? Well, if nature can do that, why can't I? Well, how you do it is not by trying to plant, uh, you know, peaches in, in northern Michigan when it rains all the time. You know, you, you grow what belongs in northern Michigan or you grow what belongs in Oregon or Washington or Maine, wherever it is, and then you just put them in the ground and you walk away. So you bought bulk wholesale, sold enough to pay for your trees that go on the ground. So that's free. And then you do nothing to them. That's free also. Now I want you guys to do the return on investment because you probably do this a lot. What if your investment is zero and you, you earn $1 a profit at the end of the year? Cause you go out, Oh look, there's a blueberry, a, a pint of blueberries on the bushes. I pick, so it took some labor time and I go sell it to somebody down the road. My net return is a dollar. What was my, what was my return on investment? Well, it should be infinite if it continues it to, is to harvest. Infinitely incalculable because you can't divide by zero. So if you want to look at return on investments on a natural system, every year that system is going to produce a surplus at an infinitely incalculable rate of return. And all you got to do is know where it is, well, I don't have to go hunting. I know where it is. I put it there. And then you go out there when it's time to pick. I notice that, oh, this tree that I don't really want is kind of shading out this one. So I cut it down. And now I've got branches that I can either put in a pile and inoculate with Strafaria mushroom spawn, bigger diameter stuff. I can grow oyster mushrooms, or shiitakes. Now I've got another yield that's coming out of the system. So every time I go in, I want to be doing something that's generating a yield. Even if it's a small yield, the return on investment is, is humongous. And I'll put this out to the listeners. This is a, an approach that 
big agriculture is, has run with because they understand return on investment. Uh, but in a very short term thinking, this is much more of a living system mindset that that goes on forever in, in that sense. Uh, but we can also on on the hard core real estate side, we can even bring in tips and tricks and financial mechanisms like conservation easements that right. developers have been exploiting for years now to devalue property, uh, pass off tax savings, that we can actually use these things for farming enterprises and, uh, and forest, sustainable forestry and things like that, that I, I really love what, what you're putting out on this. And, and from the, just from the investment standpoint, um, I want everybody in your audience to get the idea out of their mind that the agriculture will generate cash flow. It may generate a little cash flow, but it, it needs it for itself. What you're doing is you're making a passive real estate investment in an agricultural property or a natural resources property, and you're going to buy and hold. And if you look across the board, agricultural properties and natural resource properties, you know, timberland uh, is a classic example because of the just the natural growth of trees over time. On average, it's about six or seven percent return on investment, virtually risk free. You can insure against the risk if you don't want to have that. Agricultural properties, it's up in the 17, 18, 19 percent over the past 20 years. That's just a passive real estate play. So if you do that, and this is what I've done, I see it as a, it's a passive real estate play. Well, now I go ahead and, and who do you think gets to benefit from this little cabin that I made on the property? I do. I get to live there. What's my rent? I'm not paying any rent, you know, back when I was on, on main property because, you know, here it is, it's free. Well, then I get a couple of cows and I get a pig and I'm kind of wandering around. I sell a cow for a thousand dollars. I got some cash. I put the other cow in the freezer. I don't have to go shopping. If I have, you know, my solar panel and my car battery, this is how I kind of all got started. A solar panel and a car battery and a light bulb. Um, I have no electric bill. So if you're producing your own power, and think about this, all you real estate folks, okay? If, if, you're gonna, if you're going to retrofit a building, don't listen to what both the good guys and the bad guys are saying about renewable energy. They say, oh, the return on investment on that is. What they're doing is, is, uh, is called fraud in account, the accounting world because you can't describe a capital investment in an asset and use a current expense to describe that. You can't do that. That's incorrect. You fail on your accounting exam in college. So if you, if you redo your bathroom, nobody goes up to you and go, oh, what's the return on investment on that one? So, well, it's, it's part of the asset. I'll see it over time when I sell that. So when you build a structure, uh, build it to power itself and heat itself, period. There you go. That's, that's, it's that simple. Now you've put it into money that you're going to be amortized over 40 years or so. Um, it, it makes so much sense to put it in at the front end when you're doing a new build. If you're going to, anybody who, in your audience, if you're doing new builds, have it heat itself and power itself by design. Then all of a sudden, lo and behold, there's no electric bill, which is kind of pretty cool. Mark, let me ask you, for the people that that are just coming into this and they're they're wondering what how do i actually implement this into my life in terms of what does that first property look like are you saying go find the clear-cut properties that you can get for cheap and start planting trees well that's how i started you think about that let's go here if this is a zero line right if this is on average where all the local real estate is selling there's got to be some crap out there and so all i have to do is, is bring it back up to zero and my returns are pretty darn good. And if I go ahead and exceed that, which is generally what I've done is I go buy a piece of property that's way down here and then you bring it up to here, you bring it up above the average because of what you've done to it. Um, that's where your big gains are. And this, this also is, there's a parallel to that kind of graph also with, with conventional ag. Um, if you look at, you know, like uh, gross revenues, they're way up here. Well, then if you look at all the inputs, it goes right along behind it. And this is about how much you make. Well, what goes along with all those expenses is work. 
I don't want to do all that work. So what happens if my gross revenues are down here, but my work is down here, I now have this much for a net. And, if, and, and once again, if you don't believe that, look at the ditch on the side of the road and you tell me, how did it do it? And when you figure out how nature does that, you go, why, why would I listen to the 85 million podcasts telling me how to grow this and how to grow that when I could just like do it nature's way? And it actually works. And if you don't believe it, I, I don't care. I don't care if you don't believe it. <laughs> Some people have, have called you a contrarian in, in a lot of different regards, I think, to um, orchard management and permaculture of uh, what I what I've seen at least this is just anecdotal a lot of people are going to hate me for this but permaculture is seen as a kind of a small scale solution and why I think I've gravitated towards your message is that these are big scale ideas and solutions what do you see the at that scale level are are people paying attention to what you're putting out Oh yeah, we yeah you know, we are. I'm, I'm for all practical purposes. When you consider there's a virtual you know lockdown on a lot of different things in this country, you know, I'm as busy as I. Not that I could I could be busier, but I don't necessarily want to be any busier than that because I think we all have a inherent uh, lazy streak in us. Um, but as far as the contrarian thing is concerned. If, if you look at all of these smaller scale suburban urban type strategies per, on permaculture around the world, well, shoot, that's where the majority of people live right now. Yeah, we should all kind of live a lot more like that in the urban and suburban environment. But where are you getting your food from? Where does your food come from? If you ever been on the other side of the mountains and go east and seen the, the agricultural wasteland that's on the east side of the mountains, it's nuts. If, Speaking of nuts, if you just go down the Willamette Valley, look at all the, the grass seed places, all the nursery places, even the hazelnut. You know, here it is. It's a perennial crop. You figure this is wonderful for nature. There's not a living thing on the ground. There's hardly any birds out there. And every time they drive anywhere, there's just dust all over the place. Um, where does your food come from? And how much food do you actually require? You know, a guy like me, probably somewhere around 365 pounds of high quality protein, carbohydrates, and oils a year. Where do you get that? You're not going to get it from your little planter box on your front porch. You guys get it at whatever store you shop at. That's where it comes from. So what we need to do is we now need to design agricultural systems that grow our staple food crops, the equivalent of corn and beans or rice and wheat and all that kind of stuff. We're gonna grow the equivalent to those products, but we're gonna grow them in ecosystems instead of, by, instead of destroying the ecosystem to plant those, those monocrops. That's where we can get it from. So if you wanna do small scale and be a small operator within a larger system, you need to be a part of a group. Uh, and, and I brought up the hazelnut folks for a reason in Oregon. They're pretty good about that. You can just join a different group. There's, you know, a couple co-ops, there's a couple different businesses. As a, as a hazelnut farmer, you become part of the company, you own a part of the company, and your small load gets aggregated with everybody else's. It gets cracked at a central processing facility, then it goes off into the market wherever they send it to. So those are, those are the models of how we can do a perennial agriculture, a permaculture. And since we're doing ecological restoration the way I do it, it's a restoration agriculture. Do you find that people would have to shift their diets to, and I'm not talking like processed foods, I'm just saying, would, if you're shifting to a perennial agriculture system, are the food groups gonna look different? Um, not a whole lot. Um, people who are you know, strictly grain eaters, lots of bread and pasta, you know, whole grains, that uh, that would shift a little, but not a whole lot. Because notice nowhere in here did I say we're going to stop doing annual grains and legumes. What we have to do is we have to design these ecosystems that now allows for these annual grains and legumes as part of it. And I did my fingers this way on purpose because we got our rows of trees or our polycultures of trees. Now we can have our alleys of our crops, and we get all kinds of soil erosion. Um, 
mitigation, uh, soil building and soil developing instead of soil, you know, degrading all over the place. So yeah, we can still have our annual crops, but not at the scale that you, that you see it these days. And would diet shift? That's also a personal choice. And one of the reasons why I brought them up early in the conversation is vegetarians and vegans. Most vegetarians and vegans were not raised that way. They made a conscious choice for whatever reasons they chose as a human being, I am now gonna shift my diet and eat this way. They're super easy to move into a perennial diet. It's like, okay, you did this once before, piece of cake. Now just go over here and eat more of these. And what does that look like? Does that include more meat? Because I know that you're an advocate of, of having animals on a farm. Well, I'm, I'm an advocate of imitating nature and there's not a single continent uh, anywhere on this planet that has not uh, co-adapted, co-evolved or been co-created with no animals. Animals are part of this earth complex and they actually perform very significant functions that are required uh, on, on the landscape as a whole for a healthy functioning of an ecosystem. And, and actually one of the things you didn't know is there was a period of time, about four years, I was vegetarian. Um, I was a, uh, I'm a Francis Moore Lapay convert and I'm not gonna take the, you know, the, the pound of beef, I'm gonna eat the 10 pounds of the legumes instead. And so what happened is I was eating feedlot meats. Well, then I was vegetarian for a period of time. And then as I started to, to play with creating ecosystems, I realized how important the animals were. So over here, uh, cows, for example, eating corn. In order to grow the corn, you had to destroy an ecosystem to plow the ground, put it in and grow it with all your machines. Then you harvest it and you feed it to the cows. The cows are not created, adapted or evolved to eat grain. They're created, adapted, evolved to eat grass and then they'll chew on twigs and leaves otherwise. So on this side, my meat eating destroyed the planet. That's absolutely true. That kind of meat eating is, is massively destructive. Well, then as a, as a vegetarian, I was directly responsible for destroying the planet instead of the cows. That makes me indirectly responsible. Well, then I started doing the restoration, ecosystem restoration. Now the animals are an important part of managing that system and taking care of it. So if you look at these orchards, these hazelnut orchards for you in Oregon, um, they got bare black dirt underneath. Well, some of the organic folks, they have grass underneath. Well, they mow it and they mow it and they mow it. Well, why not have cattle and sheep mow that for you? And as a benefit, they go ahead and they add fertilizer to it. Um, back with the contrarians in orcharding, you know, this, this, is, this is a classic with, with apples, for example. Why not have cows go through mow the grass, fertilize it, uh, 35 gallons of urine a day and like 72 cow patties a day. That's amazing amount of fertility. Now the, the tree gets more fertility, not as much competition from the grass. You move the animals out for the designated four month period before you actually harvest for human consumption. One of the things that you send through um, at the end of the season after we pick, because I'm not doing any pest control, no disease control or anything, you pick a fruit, it's got bugs in it, you throw it on the ground. Oh no, you can't do that, it's gonna propagate. No, well no it won't because as soon as I'm done picking the perfect fruit, um, I now move the fence and the pigs go in and they eat up all the fallen fruit that have you know, little insect larvae in it. And so then they digest the insect larvae and turn it into bacon. They also eat a lot, a lot of grass. So the animals now become uh, the, the workers managing this ecosystem just like they would in, in nature. They would naturally do that. And just by being intelligent about when they go in, food safety concerns, uh, stage of the tree, um, you know, the timing of pest and disease cycles, you now, you now interact with that whole, that whole uh, kaleidoscope of, of events to, to manage it as a system instead of a single crop. And, and back to expense. Where in that, when I was just describing the, the cattle and the pigs in apples, where did you see any expense? I moved a little fence and I had to know when to move the fence and I had to know the laws. Where was the dollar outlay? The original outlay, the trees, remember, they're, they're essentially free because we bought bulk 
sold some off. And so I, it's a net zero, get them, in, get them in the ground. Well, then I bought some fence and electric, fence and electric charger, solar powered charger. And so I take my time, I move a little fence, animals are out there, they gain weight, so they're gaining. Uh, I move them out, they take care of the benefit that they were supposed to do. What were my expenses? A couple of days moving fence. Well, now I've got, let's say I've got 90% of the fruit are infected with bugs and disease, and they look horrible. Well, that becomes pig food after the fact. I've got 10% of the fruit that's grade A, top dollar, number one, perfect uh, fruit. What is my, re my return on investment? Or I can go in and I can spray for scab 17 times in a year, have the tractor, I have to wear my gas mask and all these different kinds of chemistry to get rid of the bugs and insects. And it's like, no, <laughs> no, I'm not going to do that. So what is healthier for the human, a, a, a fruit that was, that was grown in a natural system with no chemicals and all that. How about healthier for the farmer, healthier for the landscape. And did you also see some of the side effect um, benefits that I got out of that? I got pork and I got beef. Well, one of the reasons why I mentioned, you know, spraying for scab, scab is a fungus. The amounts of copper and sulfur fungicides that are sprayed in fruit in the USA are astronomical. What does a fungicide kill? Fungus, right? Why would I want to kill fungus when I can have morels, strafarias, oyster mushrooms, shiitake mushrooms growing in my apple orchard? So I get all these different things that are growing there virtually free of charge. All I have to do is design the system uh, and, and move animals accordingly in harmony with both nature and the law. I'm ready to give up my occupation and do this. <laughs> uh, After and, this, well, let's talk. <laughs> we have some opportunities for you right now. One <laughs> of the, the questions I have for you, Mark, is you've advocated for chopping for grass-fed beef, for finding those uh, producers and purveyors that are doing it within the, the living system. But what I'm seeing is that you go into the supermarket and big marketing is very effective at, at selling something that, that they're not delivering on, that they're selling a, what seems to be healthy or grass-fed, but it might have been grass-fed at the, the one-yard line, right? but not the other 99% uh, of that, that cow's life. So how do you, how do you dif differentiate when the consumers are pushing that that big shopping cart, they're stressed out, they've got bills to pay and kids at their nipping at their heels. Like how, how do you, how do you manage? That, that's, that's where it does get tricky on that side. And that's why I did this, you know, kind of tri this triangle going this way and then one coming this way. Let's go back to the, you know, the, the feedlot beef person who then becomes vegan and starts eating the soybeans. Well, then what kind of soybeans are you going to eat? I'm going to go organic. So now you're doing all, all organic soybeans. Then you're like, oh, wait, but it's still a degenerative system because we're getting rid of an ecosystem that was there. So now let's start going to perennials. Let's get hazelnuts. So then you go, we get hazelnuts, but they're growing with the chemistry. Let's get organic hazelnuts. Okay, well, let's get organic hazelnuts that are managed in a permaculture perennial type system with livestock thrown in there. And it's a process. This, it's not going to happen overnight, and it's and it's a you're going to have to care, and you're going to have to care about where your food comes from and who are you supporting, who's producing your food. So so I can see more and more uh, a direct consumer link. Not that a farmer has to go out looking for for people to buy his stuff, but people go looking for farmers that are raising the food the way you want the food to be raised and you can't you can't have a certified certification agency that that does that i've been you know certified organic here since 1995 and what began as great high ideals we knew that eventually there was a possibility that it could get corrupted by the big players who come in and then the certifying agencies they can't drop the big boys because if they drop the big boys for bad practices, they lose the revenue stream that they're dependent on. And, it's, and, then, and then all these other new agencies come up and it's, it's a mess. It's a mess. And don't get me going on the whole regenerative thing right now because 
Um, it's a mess. And, and all, all that you can do is to, what I would recommend, study nature. How does nature work? Actually fundamental itself. How does it work? Now, if we can approach how that works with our agriculture, that's what we want to do. We want to have this beautiful natural system. Let's go back to, you know, 2500 BC. Do you think that the air was cleaner back then? you think that there were less toxic chemicals, radiation, plastic everywhere? Do you think there was less, uh, less traffic? There was you know, less stress in having to sit in a cubicle for your whole entire life and all that kind of stuff. The world was a cleaner place when nature was running the show. So whatever we've done, however we've gotten here, um, we're the ones who are doing something that's messed up. So we got to go back to the original model, imitate that, and you're not gonna be able to do it overnight. It's a long-term play, so why not get involved in a degraded piece of property and now work towards its ecological restoration over time? If you want help, contact Restoration Agriculture Development. That's what we're here for. Um, and then there's some very simple steps that you can go through. Now, there's, there's a lot of people now that are in this you know, regenerative agriculture, agroforestry space, that you know, went to some cool training, they got some cool degrees and they have zero experience managing natural resources and properties like that for their livelihood. All of the folks that work with RAD, we live this way. So not only do we talk about it, teach about it and help others to install it, we live this way. And we're not gonna recommend that you do anything that is gonna be a, a nuisance and cause you more trouble in the long run. Here's a million dollar question for you, Mark. Wait, wait, will you sign that contract? <laughs> I I'm will. Ready. I'm ready. <laughs> How many herb spirals do you have? <laughs> um, currently, I have no herb spirals as is currently practiced and promoted by various different permaculture websites. Um, although you can change microclimate on a site uh, by modifying an herb spiral is designed to be, you know, south facing on this side, obviously east and west and north facing over here. And you grow these various different things that have different uh, climatological requirements. Well, one of the problems with the, uh, the cool temperate region, which is like everywhere from Colorado north, even though it gets hotter in Hades in the summertime, um, on average, it's, it's in the cool temperate region. The microclimate affects uh, are brief and they get overwhelmed by the macro climate effects. A lot of recommendations are if you got peach trees, you're trying to grow them up north, put on a south facing slope because they need that extra heat. Well, one of the problems with put them on the south facing slope is they, they flower too early and then the macro climate says, no, we're going to four below zero tonight. And it goes four below zero and you just killed your peach tree. So micro, the micro climate enhancements uh, really aren't as effective in the northern temperate into the Arctic. Into the Arctic, some of the places you can grow some really, you know, amazing stuff with with microclimate uh, enhancement. And in the in the hotter areas, more of the microclimate enhancements I've seen that have been useful have been shade and shelter from the sun. You saved that one because I was about to lose all the urban permaculturalists. Mm. <laughs> that would possibly tune in. Um, well, Mark, I can't thank you enough for your time. This was fantastic. What I really encourage listeners to do is to go Google your name, because not only do you have Restoration Agriculture as a book, but you've been featured in films. There's plenty of other podcasts out there that you cover a range of subjects that we didn't even touch on in this. And that's okay, because I don't want to just go out and reproduce the same thing that you might have said 50 other times, even though there's, there's definitely themes in there that, that we've touched on, but it was, it was an absolute pleasure. And I, I really appreciate it. I think you're doing a tremendous job for the planet. Well, thank you. And uh, I hope that all the rest of you folks, you know, contact restoration, agriculture development. Let's, if, if we don't help you design your property, let's figure out how to partner. Let's figure out how to partner you with somebody else to get the right place in, in the right uh, region. And we can actually, transform this world, make it a greener, healthier, more richly abundant 
place in 15 years at a profit, period, period. It's fairly easy to do. Okay, everybody, that is a wrap. Thank you for tuning into this episode. I hope that you got a lot out of it. These conversations are so important to me and they are so important to the times that we're finding ourselves in. If you want to connect with other like-minded individuals and with thought leaders in this movement, be sure to check out our Facebook group. It's called Regenerative Real Estate. You can find it, request to join. We'd love to have you build the community with us. If you want to find out more about us and our organization, Latitude, you can go to ChooseLatitude.com. We're a Pacific Northwest-based real estate sales and development team that help people live in more thoughtful and resilient ways. We believe in sustainability as a powerful force for good, and that's why we're putting so much emphasis on creating meaningful dialogue and content like this podcast to bring it to you. Just one last ask before we end this podcast, if you could please go to whatever platform you're listening to this podcast on and leave us a rating and review and hit subscribe. That way you can get notified whenever we're dropping the next episode and the feedback is great for us. It really validates what we're doing and it really goes to signal to potential guests that, hey, people are tuning into this, they want to hear from you, and they want to hear about the regenerative real estate space. Okay, thanks again for listening. Until next time.